Creative Sandbox Way Podcast, Episode 173. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, and I believe that life is too short not to express the innate creativity inside of you. So I wrote a book called The Creative Sandbox Way, based around 10 guideposts that I developed to get myself out of creative stuck and back to the sense of playful creativity that I naturally had when I was a four-year-old. That book was just the tip of the iceberg. I continue the conversation each week with this podcast. Let's jump in. About a year ago, I reached out to a woman that I had crossed paths with many years ago in the online world, whose name is Daphne Cohn, because I saw that she had a podcast called The Creativity Habit that looked like it might be a good fit for me to be a guest. And it took over a year, but eventually, that interview happened. And it wasn't just a regular old podcast interview. It was really special, really special. Now, Daphne had told me in my correspondence with her that her interviews are long, 90 minutes to two hours. That's how much time she told me to set aside. But ours went even longer than that. I didn't realize going in that Daphne would be digging really deep, starting from my earliest memories of creativity. She is a story whisperer. Daphne is. And her superpower, or at least one of her superpowers, is drawing people's stories out of them. And then connecting the dots to reflect their stories back to them. And at the end of our allotted time together on that day of our interview, our two-hour time slot, we had only gotten up to age 27. I didn't realize that that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to really be basically, I was going to be telling her my life story. So we made a second appointment for the next day. And we spent a second two hours together. And the entire experience for me was profound. And the reason that it was so profound is because Daphne is a story whisperer. Now, you know, because of her super superpowers of really connecting dots in the way that she does, drawing stories out and connecting dots. Now, I am a, d- a dot connector by nature. I find meaning in my life and in experiences. That's what I do. I probably more self-aware than the average bear. And Daphne remarked on that. But she's so gifted at pulling stories out of people and finding the larger meaning in those stories and reflecting them back. And as I shared with her afterwards, having my life story curated by her and seeing the beautiful page that she made for the episode on her podcast with the photos that I sent her, There's only, I think she used maybe three photos and the words that she carefully chose to represent my episode, maybe 200 words altogether. I didn't count, but it's not very many. It almost knocked me flat. It was so profound. Now I am used to hearing compliments from people, you know, people compliment me for this or that or the other thing, but I am not used to seeing myself described in the way that Daphne described me. And I have a link in the show notes to the page that she made. And I highly recommend that you go over and look look at it because it's so beautiful. And it's just, it's really different from a lot of, from my podcast and a lot of podcasts and blogs that people have because she's so spare in her use of photos and words that it's, it has a it has a very strong impact. So and it brought tears to my eyes 
to see the words and pictures that she chose and how she put them together. When we talked about, you know, we talked about my life. (laughs) And it occurred to me that although, as you know, if you are a regular listener, I'm quite transparent. I'm quite transparent on the podcast and on my blog. My audience has never seen me in quite the way I shared myself with Daphne. So I asked Daphne if I might have her permission to republish my interview from the Creativity Habit over here on the Creative Sandbox Way podcast. And Daphne graciously agreed. She said, as far as I'm concerned, the value of the podcast is you. So it's yours to share, which was so gracious and generous of her. So this week and next, I am so pleased to share with you not only my story, but this wonderful podcast, The Creativity Habit, that you should know about because it is truly, truly special. Daphne does something really different from what what, any other podcast that I'm aware of, the way that she really dives deep with people and their stories. She's amazing. And I hope that you will add her podcast to your feed. It also just so happens that conveniently, this works out very well for me because I'm about to leave for Europe on the 17th of August. And in the interest of self-compassion, rather than knocking myself out to record extra new episodes between now and when I leave, this is uh, makes it a lot easier for me <laughs> to be able to share with you something that I don't have to record brand new. So win-win for everybody. Self-compassion, yes. Uh, know something cool this week. So when this episode ends, um, that will be the end. So I'm going to sign off here and see you next week with part two. Enjoy. Enjoy Daphne and her interview with me. See you next week. There are voices in our head and they are the worst of voices. They know where we live, they know when we're awake, and they follow us everywhere we go. They're the voices of fear, doubt, insecurity, and not enoughness. They never tire and they never shut up. These voices, if we're not careful, will trap us in a life that is too safe, too dull, too small. And if we listen to the voices, we will work our asses off to try to please them only to find ourselves having failed again. Melissa Dinwiddie is an amazing talent. It's like everything she touches becomes beautiful. At 12, she was put in adult drawing classes. At 19, she was a dancer at Juilliard. When she was 27, she was in galleries for her paper cut art. And by 29, she had her own business making commissioned calligraphy and paper cut art for clients all over the country. But she burned out. It was the voices. Ever since she was little, Melissa strived to be the best. The best artist, the best dancer, the best. And it was exhausting. She tried so hard, but of course, it's never enough. No matter her success, the voices wouldn't shut up. Yet, it was these voices, the very same ones that threatened to take her down, that somehow brought her back home. To play, to joy, to simply making. This interview is a long one, so I broke it down into two parts. So much of it is Melissa's story, her fight with gremlins and her ultimate arrival at who and where she is today. And because it is her story, it is full of lessons learned and wisdom gained. Not to mention, Melissa is a fabulous storyteller. This is what it means to be an artist who is really good at making art and really good at being human. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, and you're listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast, the practice behind the art, the story behind the artist. Today's guest is artist Melissa Dinwiddie. In this first part, we talk about abandoning drawing in seventh grade for not being good enough, getting into Juilliard at 19, and dropping out at 20. Then we go into the second part of starting her own business at 29, getting divorced, shutting her business down, and then starting over with her newest business, The Creative Sandbox. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world.
Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hello, Daphne. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So the first question that I ask is, how did creativity show up for you as a little girl? Oh, wow. I remember just being like wildly creative. I love to sing and dance and make art. I was always drawing and making up songs about my cat. (laughs) And it just was just like totally natural and part of who I was and just showed up everywhere when I was really little. And especially it sounds like singing and dancing or it was just all areas. It was, it was everything. I, I, I loved to draw and paint and yes, singing and dancing around the house. And I do remember making up songs about my cat. I would make up these like long operas <laughs> and my, my dad loved to sing and my parents we had a piano in the house and my mom played piano and my parents, I think at the time had guitars and ukuleles and there was always music on and there was always like crayons and markers, sort of art and creativity was just sort of always around. It was just part of everything. But what is fascinating to me about that is that art and creativity really were such a big part of your life. And I know then that you went to school as a kid and there was this period right around like fifth, sixth, seventh grade where something shifted for you. Like you. Yeah. Well, it actually started earlier than that. I started noticing what other kids were doing. I remember in kindergarten, there was, you know, the, the marker table. And I remember my friends, Mandy and Laura were drawing, it must've been around Easter because they were drawing chickies and bunnies. (laughs) and I thought that was so cool the chickies and bunnies that they were drawing so I started copying them and I and we all drew chickies and bunnies and that was really fun and we all of us enjoyed drawing chickies and bunnies together but then by the next year I think and I think this is a developmental thing when kids start really noticing the differences around them and Mm -hmm. I noticed Aaron Brody, (laughs) this boy in class was drawing race cars and they were so good. They seemed, you know, for a first grader, they seemed so realistic. I'm sure if I were to look at them now, they wouldn't be, you know, wildly impressive, but but for a first grader, they seemed so amazing. And I had no desire to draw race cars. I couldn't care less about race cars, but I could tell that the skill with which he drew those race cars was beyond what I felt, you know, my skill level was. That was really when what I now call the gremlin voices, that was when they started getting planted. Was first grade. That was like, it was first grade. So that was when it started. And then like the next moment was, I think it was probably maybe fourth grade. Back then, um, I think they still have this, at the time it was called the Scholastic Book Club. I don't know what it's called now, but we'd get these little catalogs passed out in class and we could order books and also posters. And I ordered these posters, you know, they were oil paintings by some adult, you know, some like very skilled artist. And at the time, my, my grandmother, my mom's mom had taken up oil painting. And so she was taking these oil painting classes. So here I, I got this poster, these posters of that art. I can't remember the name of the artist, um, Durer, I think, who did, you know, these very sort of photographic realism paintings and drawings, Albrecht Durer. And I couldn't do that. (laughs) I didn't know how to do that. And for some reason, I had this idea in my head that if you weren't just like born knowing how to do that, then, you know, too bad for you. (laughs) You either knew how to do it or you didn't. And I didn't know how to do that. And that's interesting because your grandmother was taking classes. I know. And in fact, she bought me a whole set of oil paints and, you know, gave me a little class. She bought me some books, gave me some little lessons. For some reason, I still had it in my head that I should be able to do this like automatically. And, you know, I think the reason that I had that in my head is because back then, this was the 70s. And back then, 
you know, there was this whole self-esteem movement. Tell your kids that they're, they're smart and they're talented, right? right? And now through the work of Carol Dweck and all of her work on mindset, now we have learned or our people are learning that that's actually not helpful. Right. Your kids, you're so smart. You're so talented. My well-meaning, loving parents told me all the time how smart and talented I was. And so unbeknownst to them, they had, you know, given me this very fixed mindset. Instead of telling me, Melissa, you've worked so hard. Good for you. You've worked so hard. They told me, you're so talented. You're so talented. You're so talented. And I was put in all these after school classes for gifted children and after school classes for gifted artists and stuff. <laughs> Me with my fixed mindset, I thought, well, I should know how to do all this stuff automatically. Well, okay. So what's interesting about that is you have this fixed mindset. You feel like, oh my gosh, I should already know how to paint like one of the most famous, <laughs> like a master. <laughs> But you're also obviously still doing art because you're in gifted art classes. So, well, yeah, but I, I quit not so long after that. I wasn't at gifted art classes, but the gremlins were really like getting their roots in really strong and all the comparison trap BS. So everyone was telling you you were great and yeah. you were being put in these special classes. Yeah. So every time, so I felt like everything that I did had to be amazing. So I started doing less and less, you know, I was disincentivized from trying. So I, and I remember the moment when I decided to stop there, I was in this class for, again, it was, you know, it was either for gifted kids or it was an adult art class. I don't remember which the, the class was, took place at this art center where there was a a courtyard. We all went out into the courtyard to draw trees. The assignment was to draw pick a tree and draw the tree. But every stroke, we were supposed to start at the roots and draw up through the trunk and out through a branch. And, but we were supposed to, you know, look at that particular tree and, and draw it that way. And I just had the hardest time with that. And we came back in and put all our pieces on a table to see what everybody had done. And everybody else, I, I could, I recognize the trees. Oh yeah, there's that tree and there's, there's that tree. And my piece just looked like a scribble to me. It just looked so pathetic. You know, again, I think this might've been a bunch of adults who'd been make, making art for years, you know, and here I am 13 years old, feeling like complete failure. And I just quit after that. I just I didn't sign up for any other art classes. When I was in high school, I never took any art classes. I now call it my 15-year hiatus. <laughs> did you miss it during that time? I mean, did you feel a lack or had it just become so much of a challenge to try to be the best that it was no longer enjoyable? I think it was probably both. It's hard for me to put myself back into that time you know, I think I had programmed myself so much that I wasn't an artist. You know, that not only was I not an artist, but I bought into this story that I was not a creative person. I just was not a creative person. I just believed it. But I I still had some sketchbooks and I would periodically pull out the sketchbook and attempt a drawing and kind of tell myself, you know, I'm kind of good at this but the gremlins would say no you're not you suck and so then I would put the sketchbook away and not pull it out for a couple of years so there was a longing there that you were responding to but then the voices were just too strong you know that when you say that it like makes the backs of my eyes prickle with like it it makes me so sad because yes the longing was was there, but I couldn't, it's like I couldn't even acknowledge it. It was so painful. Like when I look back at that time in my life, 15 years, it it really felt like I was living in, in shades of gray, but I I couldn't even acknowledge that to myself. Like I was so blind to it. And so I tried to fill it in other ways. 
And at the same time, so this is so interesting, Daphne, because here I was believing that I was a non-creative person. And yet it was in those years that I started dancing. So I had this, I had this identity as I'm a non-creative person. And yet I started dancing. Like taking <laughs> lessons, dancing, like yeah. performance, that whole thing. Right. I started taking dance classes and I fell madly passionately in love with dance. Wow. And so much so, so much so that when I graduated from high school, I took a year off from, from school. I had applied to Wesleyan. That was the only, the only college that I had applied to. I'd gotten in and I deferred for a year and I danced like four and a half to six hours a day dancing because I was so madly in love with dance. What kind of and, dance? Well, I started with jazz, mm -hmm. which is such a misnomer <laughs> because jazz music is improvisational. It's an improvisational art form. Right. Jazz dance, first of all, it's rarely done to jazz music. And second of all, even more importantly, it's not improvisational. It's fully choreographed. So it is not, it's not improvised. It's such a misnomer. But isn't that interesting <laughs> that you chose a form of dance that's fully choreographed? I mean, yes. a lot of dances, but there's also a lot of dance that isn't. So it's almost right. like you were finding your way back into creativity, but in a way where you could do it right. You know, you could yes. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So interesting to me. And then where I ended up, like the art forms that I do now are fully improvised. The art forms that I'm, that I am most attracted to are fully improvised. I ended up exactly. becoming a jazz singer, wow. a performance improviser, and the visual art that I am most drawn to now is improvisational. But it took me a long it's like, it's been a long route to get here. And I had to go through this, like, follow the rules, follow very structured, be told what to do so I can do it right. And then very, very gradually let go of those. Exactly. But I, yeah, you're so I totally right. get it. My whole thing, it was all about following the rules and doing it right. And then the art that I found that I most love is asking questions. And there are no <laughs> rules for asking questions. Yes. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing to follow. I mean, sure, you can learn yeah. how to ask good questions, but in the moment, there is only what comes up in the moment. Right. Yeah. But that's scary, right? You have to be able to lean into uncertainty. Right. That's really scary. I wasn't able to do that at 16, 17 when I got started as a dancer. You fall in love with dance to the point where you're doing dance. You take what's now called, of course, a gap year. This was before right. gap years, right? Before, so this is before gap years. I, was, I had friends in high school who told me I was ruining my life. Really? Yes. Wow. I grew up in Palo Alto, California, yeah. in the shadow of Stanford University, an extremely high-pressure environment. I was an academic kid. I was like that one of the straight A kids getting A's was very important to me. I was super academic. And so this like take it a year off thing, I graduated in 1984. That was like not a thing. You made you know? the decision yourself, like not with your parents. This was something you were just clear about that you needed to do. Yeah. Because I had fallen in love with dance and I wanted to be a dancer and I couldn't see myself going off to college where I wasn't going to get dance training. You were aware enough to know that. I was self-aware enough to yeah. know that this was what I wanted to do. So yeah. what happened? So you did this year of dance. So I took a year off and then, and then I had this brilliant idea that I would apply to go to Stanford because then I could live at home and go, which would have been so, which would have been a disaster. And that then I could stay dancing at my same dance school, which is a stupid reason to choose a college. But you know, I was what, 18 years old or whatever. So I did, I applied to Stanford and I thought, well, I guess I should apply to a safety school. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody at, 
in my high school applied to a UC, University of California campus. And at the time, the way they did it could only apply to one UC campus. And being the elitist that I was, I thought, well, UC Berkeley is the best, the most prestigious. That's all I cared about. So, but I won't need it because I'll get into Stanford because I have good grades and SAT scores. So I applied to UC Berkeley as my safety school and I got rejected from Stanford. So I cried for about an hour and then I said, okay, fine, I'll go to Berkeley because I just wasn't going to fly across the country. So you already knew, though you, you had gotten into Berkeley at that point. Well, it's, it was a, it's a numbers game. If you, if you have the grades and the SAT scores, you're in. So I knew I was in. So you're at Berkeley and you, you keep dancing while you're at Berkeley. So here's the thing. I avoided the dance department for the first semester because I, (laughs) I had this idea that, that college dance departments were really lame. And I don't know where I had this idea from. Just, I, I don't know. My friends from my little dance school which was quite good in Palo Alto. We just had this idea that that college dance departments were all like, I am the essence of a tomato. And <laughs> they weren't solid dance technique. And it turns out, of course, that we were quite wrong, but we didn't know that. And so I avoided the dance department for the first semester and I took classes at Berkeley Ballet Theater, but I was only dancing like an hour and a half a day. So second semester... I started taking classes through the dance department and and discovered that it was amazing. They had a choreography class. And in fact, the directors of the dance department there were on sabbatical in Israel. And there was an Israeli dancer who was doing an exchange who was teaching in the dance department. And she was amazing. She taught these solid gram technique classes. And I had been studying gram at my dance school in Palo Alto. So it was fantastic. And then at the end of the semester, I auditioned for the UC Berkeley Dance Company and I got in. But then I came home over the summer and my teacher, the teacher at my Palo Alto Dance School pulled me aside and said, (laughs) okay, a little background. So there were three people in my dance school in Palo Alto who had auditioned for Juilliard in New York City. And Mm -hmm. Juilliard does auditions around the world in different places. And they had done these auditions in San Francisco. And so these three people had gone and done those auditions and they'd all gotten in. So I'm home for the summer. I, here I was 19. So my dance teacher pulled me aside one night after class, pulled me aside and he said, essentially, what the F are you doing with your life? Why are you in Berkeley? you should be in New York. You should be going to Juilliard with these other three. So here you are being told again, wow, you're really good. Right. And this is the same teacher who had pulled me aside the first time I had taken his class a couple of years before. You're really good. Where have you danced before? Me saying, um, Palo Alto High School? (laughs) You know, so... It was extremely validating and also terrifying. And I said, well, maybe I'll go next year. No, no, no. You should be going now. So about, a, you know, we had, we talked for about an hour. I'm crying, you know, so I drove home. Why are and, you crying? Well, it was an intense conversation. He was aggressively suggesting <laughs> that I radically changed my life, that I drop out of UC Berkeley, that I go to New York. And, and also a little context. This is a man who used some sketchy emotional tactics to push people, push people in positive, use negative tactics to push people in positive ways. Uh He would drive wedges between people so he'd try to create competition and he would try to create competition. Yeah. He, you know, I, he did things that were great. And he also did things that were really awful. Like we used to talk about having us like a survivor's group from the dance school. It's like love it and hate it at the same yeah. time. And so in that moment though, a lot of the crying was this, Oh my gosh, I'm being asked to, to just uproot, to change my life, to change, to really yeah. push beyond what I'm comfortable with. Or Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, this is such a dream. He's validating a dream. 
and this is terrifying. Right. And, you know, so many emotions right. at once. And what are my parents going to think? And can I do this? And it would mean saying no to, you know, one path and saying yes to another path. And, oh my God, New York City, I've never even been there. And so many emotions at once. So I drove my parents' VW bus home and, you know, crying the whole way and thought to myself, and I remember this so clearly thinking, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm over 50 now. And I remember thinking, I don't want to turn 40 and think what, what might have been. And that was what ultimately made the decision for me. So what, you're emotional now, like, what is that? God, Daphne, that was, that was such a huge moment in my life. And it was such a big dream for me. And I'm so proud of that younger self for going for it. And, and it, and it was a failed dream. You know, I did go to Juilliard. I went, I went home and I told my parents, and I was so proud of that younger me for doing that. You know, I told my parents, I pulled them, I invited them into my dad's office. And I said, guys, mom, dad, I've decided I'm going to audition for Juilliard. They had one more set of auditions in New York. And my parents, you know, God bless them, they were really rather shocked. Like nothing could be more important to them than academics. And yet they were supportive. They supported me. You know, that meant so much to me. They supported their their only daughter in flying off to the big city and auditioning for Juilliard. And I did that. And it was the hardest year of my life. It was a miserable, miserable year. At I got Juilliard. In, at Juilliard. I got in. I, I, and, and I was ecstatic for three days or whatever it was. And then school started and it was a, a terrible fit for me. As a Californian, <laughs> the dance division, the new dance division director didn't like Californians. She didn't like modern dancers. Juilliard is, you do equal amounts of both ballet and modern, but I was much more a modern dancer than a ballet dancer. And the dance division director, she hated me. (laughs) And I got injured early, a few months into it, into the year. I got a vicious case of tendinitis. I was, I had raging eating disorders. I was terribly bulimic. I gained a ton of weight. Had had you had eating disorders before that? Or was that a result Oh, yeah. 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 I was bulimic, but I was in massive denial about it. it w- I was horribly, horribly depressed. I didn't have my support system there. It was just such a miserable year. And the weather, I'm a Californian and it was like the, <laughs> it's like the worst weather that they'd had in like 15 <laughs> years or something. I was freezing cold. I didn't have the wardrobe. I was just, it was so, and I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't, I didn't know anything about self-compassion and self-care, you know, it just, it was such a miserable year. I only had one advocate on the entire faculty. I couldn't dance most of the year, most of the year. I couldn't dance. I ended up spending most of the time walking around the city in in pain. Isn't academics a part of school at Juilliard or it's really... So that's another thing. Yes, but <laughs> I learned very quickly that dancers are only allowed to take one academic course per semester. Wow. The way that I learned this is that when I did my audition, I was we had to take a written test um, for music theory, I think it was. And because I'd already had a year of school, year of college, I'd taken piano and violin and viola. I passed out of the first year of music theory. And because I had a year of college, I was in the second year of humanities. So I was a second year student. And then because the first day of class, they give you placement auditions for dance to place you. And usually they just slot everybody in level one, both ballet and modern but they put me in level two modern. So because of that, I had this really wonky schedule because I was in second year humanities, level two modern. And then also they put all dancers in 
a keyboard class, which I thought was completely stupid because <laughs> I'd had seven weird. years of piano. So I just didn't go to the keyboard class. And it turned out that there was, so I was in level two humanities. And then it turned out there was a art history class that picked up right where my UC Berkeley art history class had ta- had left off. So I did what any UC Berkeley student would do, which is I went and talked to the teacher. And I said, do you mind if I take your class? And she said, I don't mind. Sure. Why not? So here I am. It's the second week of school and I'm in this art history class, which happens to be when the keyboard class would be, but I'm not taking the keyboard class because I don't need it. Right. Well, this is not how one does things at Juilliard. So I get a note from the dance division office, come upstairs immediately. So I go upstairs and I get this terrible dressing down from the director. This is not how things are done, et cetera, et cetera. You're not allowed to take this art history class. And I wow. said, why? You, and basically she's a bureaucrat. She says, just because you can't. Wow. And I say, why? And she says, you can't. And I say, why? And finally <laughs> she says, because dance, dance students are only allowed to take one academic class semester. And again, I say, why? And she says, you know, she just digs her heels in. And then I remember that there is another dancer who is in both of my academic classes. I said, well, what about her? And she says, well, she came in with very high ballet skills. Um. And I say, well, I came in with very high modern skills. (laughs) Well, she didn't like that. So I, I made an enemy, of course. So then at the end of the semester, Juilliard has a thing called juries, which is basically pro forma re-auditioning, essentially. I couldn't do that because I was still injured. You, you do these auditions and then you have to go in and face all of the teachers sitting in a line behind a desk, behind desks, or behind a long table who tell you everything that's wrong with you and everything that's good about you. And I had to walk in in street clothes and have them all say, well, we don't really know you because we haven't seen you all year. And I was going to have to do juries at the beginning of the fall semester. So I came home over the summer and my injury had gotten quite a bit better, but then it came back with a vengeance over the summer. And meanwhile, my older brother was home with all of his college friends and they were talking about the college experience. And I was really missing the college experience, which Juilliard was not. And also, you know what? I hadn't been dancing and I realized that my body wasn't in pain all the time. Mm. And that was really nice. I really liked not being in pain all the time. So it was a hard decision but I ultimately decided to go back to UC Berkeley. That was really good. And it was hard because now the one piece of creativity, the one place where I felt like this is where I'm creative, that was taken away from me. So for a while, I was on the quest for the miracle cure for my dance. Actually for five years, I was on the quest for the miracle cure. And I felt like, you know, that was my thing. That was my passion. That was my creativity. That was my creative thing. The, the place that was my, my expressive, fun, creative thing, that was just stripped away from me. And that was such a huge piece of my identity that I really had to mourn. That was very, very hard. So I'm going to ask something that actually is very tangential in a way, because I'm just curious, like you mentioned very like we just touched on the fact that you had the bulimia that you were in denial about with dancing and I'm just when did that start that started I think I was around 17 definitely when I was dancing but it the seeds were planted well before that from sexist culture and my family of origin, the, the combination of those things. I mean, I remember thinking I, so, I felt this such a desperate need to be the best, like at everything, just such a desperate need to be the best, to be perfect. 
And like, why? I have no idea. But there, but it was always there from such an early age. And if I couldn't be the best, if I couldn't be perfect, then at least I could be the thinnest. And like this, this attempt to control it, like that's where it came from. Yeah, you know, that's where that's where the eating disorder sprang. That's that's what it sprang out of. So okay, so you have this in- incredible ambition. You're obviously really smart, and you're very talented. And you now have you're back at Berkeley. Dance is off the plate, even though you're doing whatever you can to try to figure out how to heal your body so you can get back into dance. And what is happening for you outside of the dance world? Because you're not doing art at this time, right? You have not stepped back into that area of life. So no, I didn't even think it was an option for me. I'm not creative, right? Right. (laughs) No. So what was I doing at this point? I was exploring and I was really enjoying the exploration. I was exploring social science stuff and humanities kinds of things. I was really getting into the academic stuff and I was loving that. I was really enjoying it. And there was definitely a lack. I mean, now I can see it, this, I had such a hunger, but I didn't, I, I was so kind of blind to it. You know, I didn't know how to fill it. There was a longing. I mean, I, re- I remember, I don't remember when in the chronology this was, but like, I remember a period of my life when I would go shopping for stained glass windows. I, I was obsessed with stained glass windows. Somebody in my life, a cousin or somebody, had this beautiful antique stained glass window hanging in their craftsman home. And I just got obsessed. And I would, every free moment that I had, I would go to antique stores looking for stained glass windows. As if hanging a stained glass window in this like metal window in my room (laughs) would somehow bring joy to my life. Like that wasn't going to transform this awful room that I was living in into this gorgeous craftsman home, but somehow, somehow it felt like it would. I don't know. That's how my longing for creativity came out. It was consumerism. It was consumerism, but it was wanting to figure out a way to bring beauty into your life. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but th- that's how it came out. And like now I see like, oh, I was so, I was seeking, I was like so desperate, but it would have been so much more satisfying if I had known that I could have, you know, opened up a sketchbook and drawn stained glass windows. So when did that you know what I mean? back into play? Because art is a huge part of your life and has been for a long time. So like, when did you go from, oh, I just, I'm obsessed with stained glass windows to, oh, I can make stuff again. Right. Like, oh, it took a long time. It was when I was 27, 28. I had just gotten married to my first husband, my now ex-husband. And actually, now I can look back on planning the wedding and see that that was really my first big creative act as an adult, because that was like this big art project, planning that wedding. After, and, and that we had a Jewish wedding, and we, we commissioned a ketubah artist to make our ketubah, our Jewish wedding document. And after the wedding, I, w- I was at a loss for what to do with my life. So I thought, oh, maybe I will get a job in publishing. I sort of half-heartedly tried to get a job, applied for one or two, didn't get any jobs and thought, well, it's really not publishing. It's really writing that I'm interested. I'll be a writer. Somebody has to write those essays in in articles in magazines, right? (laughs) Well, and actually, you know, it's fiction that I'm interested in. I'll be, I'll write fiction. Well, now all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure on my writing. It's not just I'm going to write. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just like, I'm going to write. It's no, I'm going to get published, right? So what do you think happens when there's pressure to be amazing? You can't do anything, right? right? Everything is crap. But I didn't have any of that understanding at that point. I didn't have any of like all the stuff that I teach now. I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that everything I wrote was crap. (laughs) <laughs> and masterpiece, masterpieces didn't flow instantaneously from my fingertips. So well, I, 
Just a question around that. Was it crap? Like, do you know? Because no, it was just right. Because up until now, you've often thought like, I can't do this. And then you have all these people saying, you're really good at this. (laughs) So no, it was just gremlins. It was just the gremlins. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the gremlins. It was just the same thing as when I was in fourth grade. And thinking, I can't paint like Albrecht Durer, right? right. <laughs> right. Like, of course right. you can't paint like Albrecht Durer. Right. You're a fourth grader <laughs> and you've never painted before, you know? She's like, I can't write like Stephen King. Right. Like, of course you can't write like Stephen King. You haven't done this before. Give yourself a freaking break, you know? I didn't know any of that. All I knew was I was like, all of my thinking was controlled by my gremlins completely controlled by my gremlins. I didn't have any of that under awareness, none of it. So what I did was the summer that I was quote unquote, trying to be a writer, I spent that time basically not writing and reading about writing, (laughs) avoiding writing and procrastinating and doing. So one of, one of the things that I did to procrastinate was I did, I started doing some arts and crafts and for the wedding, we had given away favorite wedding favors. We'd given these glass votives candles as wedding favors. And we had a ton of them left over. And so I had this great idea that I would wrap some pretty papers around them to make these little like votive, you know, candle gifts. Candles were super big that summer. And so in all the magazines and stuff. So I went to the art store to buy some pretty papers to wrap around these glass votives and I walked in the art store and I felt like such a fraud. I was sure that the art police were going to come cart me out of the door, squirt me out the door. And this is because you'd made a decision when you were 13 that you are done. I wasn't an artist. artist. Yeah. And non-artists are of course not allowed to be in the art store. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> they could tell. They could just look at me and tell. She's not an artist. Not an artist. Squirt not her artist. out the door. <laughs> so I bought, I went to the art store. I bought some papers that they wrapped up in, you know, brown craft paper. And I took them home and I started gluing them around the glass votives and they they came out really cool. So I'm like, I'm being craftsy. Look at me. And then I had this idea that I could cut some shapes out of the paper before I glued them around the votives. And then they would make like little miniature luminaria. Wouldn't that be cool? But of course, you know, I, I couldn't possibly cut shapes out of some of the paper, you know, it would, might, might ruin the paper. Right. <laughs> Couldn't possibly do that. So instead, I took the brown craft paper and I didn't have an X-Acto knife. So I took a paring knife out of the knife block and I didn't have a cutting mat or anything. So I took the paring knife and I cut the craft paper on, you know, wooden cutting board, cut some little leaf shapes out of the craft paper and I glued it around the glass votive candle. And sure enough, it looked really cool. Well, I really liked that. And to give a little more context, when we were interviewing different ketubah artists before we had commissioned an artist to make our ketubah, the first person we talked to used paper cutting in a lot of her work. And I was so fascinated by that. I loved, I always loved Chinese paper cut. I always loved that. I thought, I want to do more of this. I got this like little tingly feeling in my toes. So I went to the library and I got some books on paper cutting and I started making paper cuts. I went back to the art store again, feeling like I was a fraud and they were going to escort me out the door, but they didn't. And I bought an X-Acto knife. I thought, (laughs) how can I be spending money? I'm, you know, I'm not making any money. How can I be spending money? But I bought an X-Acto blade and I started making paper cuts. And within about a day, I got bored using, you know, the designs from the books and I started making my own designs. So great. You started to come back to the interpretive, like just doing it without rules. You started to find your way back to that. Yeah. I started finding my way back to that. And I started making my own paper cuts. And and I took a few of them to the art store to get framed. And they loved them. They're like, wow, these are amazing. Did you make these? And I thought to myself, you know, I can spend six hours hunched over my little desk making paper cuts and it feels like 15 minutes have gone by. I spend 15 minutes trying to write and it feels like six hours (laughs) 
have gone by. Maybe I should take a hint from this. But at the time, you know, this is before the internet. And I couldn't imagine that paper cutting by itself could really be a thing. When they said, this is amazing, what did you think? I thought, really? (laughs) Wow. Huh. I should do more of this. Yeah. Okay. And then I had some paper cuts get into some art exhibits. And then, Daphne, I had three newspapers write articles about me in a period of like four months. Wait, how did you have paper cut art end up in art exhibits? Were you now taking it around and showing it to people or? I, I'm trying to remember what happened. I entered some in a local art show at an art, in an art gallery. And I remember this was very interesting and got me really ticked off. The local, the local art gallery called me up to say, did you design these or did you just copy them from somebody else's design? This is amazing. Like, you are so talented that, that I mean, it really, like, if you think about this, you're in seventh grade and they're saying, okay, go make art with the adults. You're a dancer and they're saying, what are you doing here? You need to be in Juilliard. Then you like embark on paper cutting. They're like, you must be copying these because that's the level of art that you're creating. (laughs) It's pretty amazing that that's happening at the same time as you're thinking, well, I'm not an artist or I'm not good enough or. Well, and you know, what's funny, Daphne, is that you were saying that I instantly find, well, yeah, but response. It's not incredible. That's, I think that's my biggest downfall actually is doubting. I totally get it. It's something I'm, I I have to continually work on. So you're it's one of the things that it's one of the things that I help others with because we teach what we need to learn. I think it's we teach others what we need to learn, but it's also we teach others what we feel most close to, right? So yes, you need to learn, but you also have a huge amount of experience with it. You're also very intimate with it. So when you teach it, you're teaching it from a place of knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And it is amazing how many times you start something and you're just really good at it. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, and that's the other piece is it's incredible to have that and then to have doubt walk so strong, like right alongside that the whole time. Always. So here you are. Yeah. My, so my response to that is always, yeah, but there's so many people who are so much better than I am. That's always my response to that. And that's amazing because it's irrelevant, right? It's irrelevant. And that that is so true. It's irrelevant. And and that points to my biggest gremlin, which is the comparison trap. I'm constantly having to pull back and just ground in. It's totally irrelevant. Like, what does that have to do with anything? And then there's also the piece of, Back to the parents, the well-meaning, loving parents saying, you know, you're so smart, you're so talented, you're so pretty, la, 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 la. Also, their metric is, which sounds so harmless, just do your best, honey. That sounds so harmless, right? That's actually pretty intense. Do your best all the time? Yeah. Dang, that's, that's really intense. And of course, they come from our family of origin, but they also, they come from everywhere. You know, it's just this, be the best. And, and this will feed into what we'll get into later with you around the play piece of it, but work, 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 and then play. And so we work, 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 and there's never time to play, you know, (laughs) or the time to play is like this big. So we'll bring this back to your story, unless there's something more you want to say about that. No, no, that's good. Okay. Okay. So bringing it back to your story you're at this place now where you're making something and it feels good and you're being acknowledged for it and you're getting written up in newspapers for it and accepted into art shows. So where, what is your thinking around it in terms of what you're doing with it and how you feel about it? Gosh, well, this point in my life, I remember 
I was just getting back to art for the first time in 15 years. So there was this sense of, oh my God, maybe I am creative, mm-hmm. which was amazing. And and I started taking all kinds of art classes and I, I had just gotten married. So I'm in this, and actually to somebody that I'd been in a relationship with for a very long time, but I'm in this relation, in this marriage, my husband was making enough money that I didn't have to go flip burgers. So I had a lot of freedom. I had a lot of time on my hands to explore. Feeling like a kind of like a little kid again. It was this very interesting period in my life where it was very exciting to be like exposed to creativity again. Like, oh my God, maybe maybe I am creative and uh, discovering passions again. I, like when I lost dance, I thought, well, I guess that was it for me. I found a passion and then now it's gone. Oh, well, (laughs) a lot of people never even have one passion in their lives. I had mine early and too bad for me. I'll get to live the rest of my life and without passion. Oh, well, so sad. I guess I get to have more than one passion. How, how amazing I I discovered. I just, well, actually I discovered um, calligraphy is what happened. That's the thing that really got me super jazzed. So I started doing the paper cutting and then I started, I thought paper cutting by itself, I don't really know if that by itself is going to take off because we had this ketubah for our wedding, this Jewish marriage contract done by the, by an artist. I thought, you know, if I learned how to do calligraphy, then I could combine that with the paper cutting and I mean, I'm not an artist, but I could learn to do some illumination and I'm sure I could do this. So there was that voice. And then there was the, then, then there was also the voice that said, you suck. You know, there was always the combination of those two voices. They were like back to back always. <laughs> yeah. So I, st- I just started signing up for every class I could get my hands on. And I remember going to a family get together over in Berkeley. I, my mom's cousins lived over there and my cousin asked, what are you, what are you liking the most? And I said, I like the variety. And then six months later, I was skipping all of my classes to stay home and do calligraphy. I just had fallen in love with it. And what's really fascinating to me is that when I graduated from college, so now we're rewinding a bit, I had picked up some calligraphy pens that my brother, my brother had given me a set of calligraphy pens because Everybody in my family knew that I loved calligraphy and illuminated manuscripts. So he had given me a set of pens at some point, high school maybe. And I thought, maybe I'll become a calligrapher. And for about a week, I pulled out these pens and practiced at the kitchen table. And I even went down to the career center and they had a file in their, in their file cabinet for calligrapher as a job option, right? Wow. Well, their file had maybe two articles in it. <laughs> it wasn't very thick. <laughs> From that file, it appeared that all calligraphers did was fill in certificates and address envelopes. And that was not enough to keep me practicing. So I put the pens away and put them on a shelf and forgot about them. I think it was, what, seven or eight years later, after my wedding, when, you know, whenever that was, when I started taking the calligraphy classes again and something really clicked. And that's when I fell madly in love. If I rewind even further back in second grade, I was really bored because they put me in the second level reading group instead of the top level reading group. And I finished all the, all the reading in like one day. I finished all the reading for the year. (laughs) So I added curly cues to all my letters and my parents at the time joked that I must be the reincarnation of a medieval monk. This is interesting because, so before we started recording, you had asked me what I'm doing now. And one of the things that I do is called story sessions where it's about pulling out the message in a person's life to, from the mess, right? So finding that thread that weaves through a person's life and the stories that back that up, because a lot of times those are stories that we turn away from, that we're, we see as failures, we see as mistakes, we're ashamed of. And then in the unraveling of all of this, you get to see how those stories are actually the stepping stones 
to exactly what you're doing now and why they're so valuable and why they were so important. And this is what's happening. Like it's amazing to see that in your life, how when you were this, when you were a little kid, you're putting curly cues on the letters and it's like this, these threads, not just of creativity, but specific types of creativity just showing up and then getting that box of getting the calligraphy pens from your brother. And then seven years after that, picking them up and being just so in love with it that you drop all other art classes. And it's just, it's fascinating. And it ties into as well, this love of words that you have it, you know, there's the, just, there's a lot of ways that I feel like, Oh, here's little seeds. Here's little, here's little indicators. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. What I love that you, you, you pinpointed was how when I started dancing, it was kind of like my doorway back to creativity. It was so like the rules, like following the rules. Like I had, I had to, my route in was through following the rules. Like now, like my, my 10 guideposts where I have my book, the creative sandbox way is based around these 10 guideposts. And guidepost number one is there is no wrong. And all of the creative forms that I do now are essentially, or that I'm drawn to are improvisational, (laughs) which is so fascinating to me. Like I had to go in through following the rules in order to get to the place of, no, no, I, I want as few rules as possible. I want to be leaning into uncertainty as much as possible. Well, and that was a safe way back in. It was, and so then you could then find your way inside of it. It's like, once you have that confidence that you got, I mean, you turn out to be this incredible dancer. Well, and by the way, that when I started with the visual art, it was also extremely regimented, very meticulous, very rule following, very detailed and... I mean, I still love detail, but very following the rules and, you know, the calligraphy that I was doing and the, the, the art that I was making for clients was very following the rules. So, and then you burnt out. And then I burned out. Yeah. I don't like making things that way anymore. And it's, and it's so funny and sad that I couldn't even, I couldn't even figure out how to show up any other way. I'll just say one thing to that because you say it's funny and sad. And that's the part where I think, oh, it's not sad at all. Hmm. That was the journey. That's just how you had to do it. I just happen to be in a place in my life right now when I am wishing that my journey didn't take so damn long. (laughs) (laughs) But you are absolutely right. I could not do what I'm doing right now. It's, you know, it's, it's similar to, I'm with my second husband right now who in a relationship that I'm so grateful for. And it, it, I, I went on 57 first dates in a two and a half year period of which he was probably number 12, but it took me two and a half years, not the same two and a half years, but an overlapping two and a half years Mm -hmm. to see him as a contender. It just took me that long. And I had to go on those 57 first dates in order to see him number 12, to see him as a contender. It just, it just, that's just how long it took. Then there's the appreciation for him in a way that had you just gone number 12 and gone off with him after that date, you may not have that same appreciation because you're like, God, there's a lot of guys out there that are not doing it for me. Like <laughs> <laughs> Everything happens yeah. for a reason. Yeah. This concludes the end of part one of my interview with artist Melissa Dinwiddie. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll enjoy part two even more. Okay, I lied. I'm back. <laughs> because I forgot to mention that Creative Sandbox Retreat, my annual five-day creativity retreat, is five weeks out, September 12th through 16th. And 
I wanted to make sure that you knew about it because I do still have a couple of spaces available. So check it out, creativesandboxretreat.com. If you want to join us, I would love to have you. Just go to creativesandboxretreat.com. It's September 12th through 16th. And it's uh, five days of uninterrupted time to create and play. And pretty much everybody who comes once comes again. Yeah, it's like living inside of a hug. So that's what I came back to tell you, creativesandboxretreat.com. All right, signing off now. (laughs) As always, go get creative. Subscribe at creative sandboxway.com slash podcast.